0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Hindu Study podcast, the podcast is part of the new books network podcast channel which has being created under the auspices of amherst college i am your host shandeep saha associate professor of religious studies at athabasca Uni- university a research and distance learning university dedicated to breaking down educational barriers by offering open and flexible learning options across the disciplines for a range of courses and programs offered at athabasca university please check out www.athabascau.ca Today, I'm happy to have Dr. Lavanya Vemsanya on the podcast. Uh, She's the editor of a series of essays that has just been published by Bloomsbury Bloomsbury Publishing. And the title of the book is called Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. Lavanya, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Sandeep. Uh, Honored to be here.
0: So, Lavanya, how about if we start by uh, having you introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Okay. Um, I'll start with my uh, Ph.D.s. Uh, my academic and professional career uh, spans three countries, uh, uh, India, Canada, and the United States. Uh, my first Ph.D. is in history from the University of Hyderabad in Hyderabad. Uh, it was um, awarded junior research fellowship and senior research fellowship from the Government of India's University Grants Commission. My second Ph.D. is in religious studies from McMaster University in Canada. My thesis completed here, uh, Hindu and Jain Mythology of Balarama uh, won the best thesis honorable mention prize from Canadian Association of South Asian Studies. Uh, I published three books, Hindu, Jain Mythology of Balarama, Krishna in History, Thought and Culture, uh, and uh, the present book, Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. My next book uh, is in press. Uh, It's on Indian history. It's called India and New History. I am also currently working on uh, my next project, uh, again on Indian history. It's called Ancient Settlement Patterns of South India. Uh, I am editor in chief, of International Journal of Indic Studies. I am recently elected vice president and president elect of Ohio Academy of History. And I have been teaching Indian history, Asian history, and religious studies uh, here at uh, Shawnee State University for over ten years now.
0: That is one impressive resume. Um, <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Sandeep. Uh,
0: so let's talk about the uh, your new book, Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. It's very different from your previous research that you've been doing on on Christianite religious traditions so uh tell me what was the genesis behind the book what motivated you to put the volume together
1: um Uh, You know how we all meet and discuss our field, right? We discuss about our research, our teaching, and our, you know, what is happening in the field, right? Uh, It has always come up in our discussions, right? Modern Hinduism and classical Hinduism, they're all seen as two distinct uh, practices, right? Um, And that's where the genesis of this book lies, you know, we, we wanted to do a book uh, and the book that examines both aspects, not separately, but together. Uh, we want to understand Hinduism. We want to understand text, but we also want to understand it in the context of uh, modern practice. That's what this book is about. We understand text, sources and modern practice together.
0: So, um, two questions coming off that, uh, off your answer there. Um, number one, when we're looking at texts, uh, in the context of modern society, do we always find, uh, kind of a disjunct? So, in other words, the texts provide us with an ideal view of whatever the author is talking about. But then how well does that, does it usually play out exactly as the author would like it in the book or does it become something widely different?
1: (laughs) Right, you know, uh, that is always true, right? You know, the book always gives something and when everybody is doing it, it might come out different, right? You know, for example, I I will give um, 30 different people the same uh, soup recipe and uh, the pack of soup, right? You know, I asked them to make 30 people make soup, but do we think all of them would make the soup in the same way? No, right? right. But the recipe is same, the idea is same, and the soup package I gave them is the same. So uh, the the uh, the concept of religion is the same. Of course, they, they're writing, the texts have uh, written the ideas and concepts, but... Practice, of course, differs in different geographical regions, different, you know, many factors can contribute to difference. But uh, there there would still be some kind of unifying element, Uh, you know, for example, rite of passage, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't know the word rite of passage existed until 1969. Right. right that that doesn't mean that it was not described in mahabharata or it was not done you know the passage of the entrances and that was not done before right we are only understanding the pattern now so we are looking back and trying to see what it is
0: very interesting now my my second question <laughs> sort of related to that is um when it, as a historian do you think it's possible to sort of reconstruct the way texts played out in their context in a pre-modern setting? So if we're looking at pre-modern India and we're trying to understand how texts were lived out in that time period, is it possible to reconstruct that? It's obviously easier to do it in the modern period because we have the sources while we're out doing field work. But is it really possible to get a sense of how people would live out their, the religious texts that they're listening to or reading, you know, yeah. say back in the 17th century?
1: Right, yeah. Um, as a historian, you know, <laughs> this is always uh, something that um, I try to find the answer. Uh, you know, we, we're always looking at the past, we're always looking at these sources and trying to reconstruct, right? Um, you know, we only have limited amount of Uh, information, limited amount of text, limited amount of inscriptions, limited amount of uh, things, right? So uh, I always uh, come up with the same question, you know, what if there is more information? Uh, What if uh, there is uh, another aspect to this, right? So uh, of course, we have understood the past religion, past life and past um, practice with all the available resources that we have right but any there is a new resource or there is something new coming up it changes right we we try to change it uh, and um, the understanding uh, and changing it is inevitable right mm-hmm. we uh, it, it happens so that's what we're trying to do here of course we understood the religion uh, but now we are adding more things to understand it in a clear way
0: right now um i believe there's 13 essays in the book the uh-huh. con- it's extremely diverse. You have topics ranging from uh, Shavite, uh religious texts to nationalist biographies and novels and Indian dance traditions. So I'm going to get you to sort of just take us really, 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 really uh, briefly through the contents of the essay so the, uh, our audience can just get an idea of what type of books are covered in the text.
1: Um. We, we have a uh, traditional text. Covered, you know, uh, of course, Mahabharata and Ramayana and uh, Puranas um, are examined. Uh, But in addition to that, we also examine uh, modern literature. Uh, For example, I examine uh, Gora, you know, modern literature, right? But it has symbolism from traditional Hinduism. Uh, And uh, of course, you know, the essay on uh, Sri Aurobindo uh, also examines Aurobindo's uh, writings, but it's modern literature. But of course, you know, examines uh the Vedanta and Vedic and yoga practices, so the concepts are classical but you know we we have modern literature as well as traditional literature examined in a number of articles here
0: yeah the the article um they're all very fascinating articles the the article particularly on the south indian artist who uh um was uh making pictures i believe
1: oh, the, uh, and yeah
0: using um, his, his own blood yeah uh, i, I uh, how did he come up with that idea about <laughs> why using his blood why not just use watercolors like everybody else
1: right you know husseini actually uh, you know took blood uh, out and you know he f- he got it frozen and then made a sculpture of uh, jailal's head with frozen blood you know, we, we have a picture of it in the, in the book, you know, you have seen but it. But why
0: though. blood? <laughs> what, what was the significance of blood for him that he wanted to do, to do it that way?
1: Right, you know, uh, Amy Ruth Holt, she examines that, and she connects it to the um, sacrificial blood, and she connects it to the story of uh, Draupadi. Uh, and if you remember Draupadi, you know, uh, she actually... Um, makes a vow in the Mahabharata that, you know, all the Kauravas should be killed, you know, she'll be, she'll Mm -hmm. tie her hair only once the blood is, you know, uh, the blood is sacrificed, you know, (laughs) Kauravas are, you know, sacrificed. So uh, anyway, Bhima brings, you know, he smears his hands with, you know, and then brings it. So uh, the story of this sacrificial blood from the story of uh, Draupadi uh, plays an important role uh, in um, Tamil popular culture uh, and uh, you know the Draupadi, uh, you know the popular practice in Tamil Nadu and you know in diaspora practices in uh, uh, Caribbean as well as uh, South Africa you know the goddess Draupadi you know Alfred Weidel has actually done uh, three volumes on this. The practice of Draupadi and sacrifice blood and the mythology, so the mythology doesn't stop with the mythology and religious practice. There, it now finds itself in popular art and modern political art, and this is how Husseini actually asserts himself. You know, he makes this art, and then he finds his identity, and he is able to actually form a political organization uh, with the support from Amma you know, in um
0: So this this is a good sort of segue into the next uh my next question so i i'm just sort of wondering then um what are some of the central themes do you think that tie these essays together so if readers are picking up the book and they're looking at the essays and they're trying to find certain themes that tie the essays together what do you think those would be
1: right um uh, the the number of themes that are addressed here are uh, gender uh, ritual uh, modern practice literature and ethics uh, so uh, there are two or three different essays tied together with each theme um, for example gender uh, there are four articles um, you know uh, and um, uh, ritual uh, of course there are three different articles uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, textual and uh, early practice, of course, there are three different articles. And, of course, ethics, modern ethics, you know, violence, nonviolence, and, uh, you know, ecology. Uh, so um, these themes are examined, but these themes are examined not in a disparate way. They're all connected. So each theme actually flows through two or three different articles, And they all examine um, with with a comprehensive view, you know. It it gives a comprehensive view on each thing uh, once all these three different
0: articles are studied. So um, let's talk about your particular contribution to the book. Now, you've done a really fascinating analysis of... uh, Rabindranath Tagore's novel, Gora. Now, this is a very big and complex novel, having read it myself. So um, let's let's talk, give us a very, very short summary of what the book is about.
1: Okay. Um, Rabindranath Tagore's Gora, of course you noted, uh, is a very complicated book. And uh, Tagore uh, himself, you know, he he writes in a very, very uh, symbolic, uh, complicated way. Uh, um, all his stories—they're not just simple representations of the characters that we see. So, same thing here uh, with Gora. You know, Gora—I read as a high school student, uh, did not understand much. Read it a couple of times afterwards. Uh, it's only recently that I understood. So, you know, you—you know—you have read it. It's—it's right. it's, it's that complex. Um, you know, it's highly symbolic. So, anyway, that's what I examine here, uh, and you know, there are uh, mainly. Two families, you know, the protagonist, the female protagonist, her family, male protagonist, his family. So Gora, Gora's family, and then his counterpart, Sucharita, and her family. So Gora, of course, his family, his mother, father, and brother, uh, and traditional Orthodox India family. And on the other side, Sucharita is living in a reformist Hindu household. She is living in a Brahma Samaj household. So her Father, of course, she was also living with foster parents. So she, her brother, and the children, three daughters are her foster parents, you know, and Lalita, and Leela. Uh, so we have this household on one side. And on the other side, we have Gora, his friend Binai, and his brother Mohim, and then his father and mother. So it's the interactions between these characters. But the point is not the interaction between these characters, what these interactions represent about the colonial society in India and how they are actually struggling uh, with the evolving India and then finding their place in this evolving India. So that's the point of the story.
0: So um, let's take a look at the uh, central figure of um, Gora himself because he comes from a very orthodox Hindu family and um you've talked about the theme of rite of passage so how does that theme uh apply to him you used um victor turner's uh theory in, uh about rites of passage and um about liminality and moving from one stage to another you used that particular theory in uh your analysis of of uh of Gora and his sort of journey through the book. So, what is this rite of passage? What is this journey that he's going through?
1: Right, um, you know, this aspect was actually missed uh, in many of the readings uh, yeah. because the the first part was not translated well. You know, the poem that he included, Rabindranath actually has a beautiful poem uh, in the. First, right on the first page, but um, people uh, mistranslated it uh, and really did not understand. you know he actually begins it with with, uh, with the poem uh, representing representing a caged bird. So caged bird and then he goes on to explain the caged mind you know and the caged mind has to be freed to get the freedom. So that's how he actually represents the colonialism. The colonialism is there. It's, it's like the caged bird, but it did not put the person in real cage. It's actually imprisoned the mind. Uh, okay. So the symbolism of freeing the bird is actually symbolism of freeing the mind. Right. So once the mind is freed, then of course we'll have independence. So the symbolism of uh, Tagore you will find in this book is all about freeing this mind. And Tagore, uh, through Gora, speaks about this through all the incidents that he discusses. Uh, And this is the struggle Gora is facing, right? Gora is living in this Orthodox household, and he's uh, taught how to live as a traditional Hindu, and he has Upanayana, and then he's this young Hindu man, right? But he's finding his own struggles, right? The, The Hinduism that he understood... And then the administration and society that he's seeing outside, uh, present-day struggle to him. So he tries to discuss it with his family, with his friend Binay and with everyone he meets. And then he tries to make himself more orthodox, hoping that that would give him the real identity and then he can live free, right? Uh, Which did not help him. And then he tries to argue with all the gurus that come to visit his father, and none of them could answer him because they are living in this, you know, textual world. They're not living in this modern world. So, uh, and there is only one guru, uh, Vidya Bhagisa, who was able to answer him and suggest him some books. And he starts reading. And at the same time, there is a huge discussion going on in the newspaper. Uh, You know, there is a a missionary that. uh, was writing about Hinduism, you know, this idolatrous religion and, you know, backward religion and all that. Uh, and of course, Gora was trying to find himself, but, you know, he he thought he has to answer all these questions and, you know, he has to give a retard to everything that the, uh, that was published. So he sent kind of like a series of letters. And in the end, the editor actually had to jump in and stop the letters because it was a wave of letters. The the missionary would write letters, you know, Gora would write letters and it's like an unending duel. So finally Gora decides, I will write a book on Hinduism. So he studies more uh, about Hinduism and then he actually understands how uh, there is a disjunct between the practice and the textual Hinduism. And then he tries to visit the villages around um, Calcutta and then tries to uh, see what original Hinduism was and how uh, people were actually moved away from it through colonial practice of education and imprisoning the mind. So that's why he talks about this imprisonment of the mind a couple of times throughout the book. Uh, and he talks, you know, Gora says right in the beginning of the book, he says, you know, the real India is not found in Marshman's history, yeah, Marshman's Indian history. It's actually found in the villages outside of Calcutta, right? You know, so that that actually is this, you know, the the teaching, uh, the, the training has actually changed uh, Indians, imprisoned their mind. They're not actually seeing the truth that is around them.
0: So, what I found so striking I about uh, um, Gora, Gora. And is that in many ways it's a celebration, in a sense, of Brahmo Samajist values to Gordon, who right. came from a Brahmo family. Because, uh-huh. in the end, it it's sort of touting a Universalist sort of uh-huh. message, right? Because right. the extremes of Hindu orthodoxy is rejected by Tagore, but uh, there we have the other character uh, in the book, uh, the Panu Babu. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, Panu
1: Babu, yeah, Panu Babu yeah, is the
0: yeah the, the orthodox Brahmo <laughs> of the Brahmo side. But then yeah. I do, what I don't quite understand is why not use the character of Binai? as the protagonist for the book because he's the one who sort of you know he's the one who I believe comes from the uh, well you know he seems to be the one that's more receptive to Brahmo Samajist ideas uh, more than than Gora is Like, what is Binoy's sort of role in the the novel he's a very quiet sort of very introspective person and Gora sometimes can be quite sort of overbearing yeah. and belligerent at times in the way that he speaks to people. So what yeah. is Binoy's point in the book then?
1: Yeah, yeah. Vinay, uh, of course, you know, as you noted, is very calm, quiet going. He's a representative of the modern Indians, you know, at the time. Uh, colonial India, the young uh, of young the colonial India at the time. Uh, they're educated. They know what is going on, but uh, they don't react. So that's 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 what is represented through him. Of course, ultimately in the end he takes the right decision, uh, he takes charge whenever he can, you know, well, he understands what is right, but not assertive. That's what India was at that time. Uh, it it's it has its mind imprisoned and it knows that. The young people that are coming into the world knew that, but they are not reacting to it. They are kind of going with the flow in a quiet manner,
0: right? So, right. so when we're looking, um, we talked about the males in the character, and what I found striking about Gora when I when I read the book was the fact that um, the men, all the men in the novel, come off, at least in my <laughs> opinion, as being extremely sort of weak compared to the women. The women in the novel have. The strongest, the stronger personalities in the in in the book, and what is Tagore trying to say there? Because the, they seem to be much more strong and very forceful, and Sucharita in particular and her sister are both people, women of very strong opinions, um, mm-hmm. but they're not at the center of this book. What is Tagore trying to say? About the position of women in Indian society at the time, or is he trying to say anything at all?
1: Right. Okay. Um, as a woman, you know, <laughs> I can say women are all very strong. <laughs> <So,
0: laughs> yeah, um, they are.
1: Yeah. So, uh, what Tagore is trying to do here is, uh, women are strong, are smart. Uh, they can take their decisions but uh, they're limited uh, by a number of uh, a number of you know, traditional rules that are placed down there um, he's trying to show how uh, Sucharita and Lalita came over these things uh, came over all limitations right uh, they're, they're, they're teenagers right can you imagine a 14 year 15 year old girl uh, starting her own school it didn't girls? occur
0: to me until later on in the book when they're trying to arrange Lalita's marriage, I think, and we found out she was fourteen at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: To arrange the marriage, yeah.
1: So Jerita was only fourteen, and she was. She was able to talk, discuss, understand all these things. Yeah. And, uh, and when she moved out of her um, foster parents' house to move into her own house, you know, they have more space now. So she starts a school with uh, Lalita. Lalita is even younger than her. So can you imagine a 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl starting a girl's school by themselves? So they are that strong. They are that smart. So Tagore actually has... Uh, very independent, strong women in mind. And he was also trying to represent if women were allowed to act on their own initiation, on their own impulse, they can actually accomplish much more positive things for India
0: than we have ever seen. So when we're talking about Gora, Gora, Mm-hmm. Do you see, what, what, what is its present message? Since we're talking about text and context, um, mm-hmm. what do you see as the significance of the novel for, in terms of modern Indian society? Or does it still <laughs> have any relevance?
1: Oh, it still has relevance. It still has so much relevance. You know, what, what Tagore said, uh, uh, you know, India is not in uh, Marchman's history book. That is still true. What Indians thought about themselves is different. What Indians thought, their history is, their society is, what India is in schools is different. It's still different. You know, the Indian history textbook, if you see it, is much different than what Indians think about themselves. The the colonialist history is still uh, part of curriculum. So so uh, so, of course, Tagore has relevance still, uh, and then. Um, Tagore's idea of uh, having a society that is equal for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever religion, whatever class, whatever uh, person's origin uh, should not matter when wa- one person is living in a society. And India had always been a pluralistic society. So that's what Tha- Gora finds when he reads these traditional texts. He understands that India is a pluralistic society. Of course, people have different identities, different uh, thoughts, different practices, but they are all seen as part of this uh, mosaic right. that's, that works together. So uh, we, we see Gora visiting small villages, visiting, you know, um, and trying to take part in the villagers' life. Uh, and he breaks a number of rules. Uh, that, you know, the the Orthodox Hindus would follow, right? You know, he would accept food, he would accept water, he would live in, you know, anybody's house uh, and all that. So, which is seen as, you know, kind of strange in those days, right? Um, But when we see uh, traditional Hindu texts and traditional practice, of course, that is uh, accepted practice. Of course, monks would travel and accept food and uh, uh, water from everyone. When did this come about? We don't know. But Tagore's ideas in Gora still have relevance for uh, Indian society, uh, and they are still part of Indian culture.
0: And I guess that an important part of that as well is um, the rejection of religious extremism, uh, because mm-hmm. we have both, both uh, represented in the book. We have sort of a very mm-hmm. extreme sort of Samaj member who, who believes that he's views right. are the right ones. And then on the other hand, you see um uh Gora and particularly his his father, um signs right. of religious orthodoxy. And uh right. both of those kind of just get sidelined by the end of right. the novel as being um ineffectual. Right. right.
1: right. So so yeah yeah so so G- Gora represents this um, Hindu society that lost its way, and then uh, Brahma, Samaj, Pannu, Babu and all those represent uh, mm-hmm. you know a last Hindu society, but um, that it has an imprisoned mind. It's thinking you know it's it's a colonial uh, representation. so it's thinking that they know everything and they are right and everybody else is wrong. So the Hinduism is all wrong and Brahmo Samaj is all right. So um, so uh, in the end, all of them actually find a middle way. Uh, Gora falls out of, you know, Orthodox Hinduism and uh, Sucharita falls out of, you know, uh, Brahmo Samaj. Uh, and um, Binaya, of course, falls out of, you know, he is the first one to actually take this middle step. You know, Binaya and Lalita get married, right? Yeah. In the marriage ceremony, they actually... Design their own rituals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the significance of ritual again—they are entering the new life, they are entering a new passage, right? So, and the rituals represent this new path. They are not old. They are not, you know, anything that is established. Right. Mm-hmm. So they 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 follow traditions from both sides, right? They don't have um, some Hindu symbols they don't uh, include
0: mm-hmm.
1: some Brahmo symbols they don't include. Mm-hmm. Right, so so rituals of course have a meaning, uh, and you know, again, a rite of passage comes into play here. So, anyway, um, the passage is represented very eloquently in the book mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the imprisonment of the mind, and then the loss of individuality of all these characters, and the, how they are at a loss, they can't find themselves, and then in the end. Of course, the, through marriage ritual, uh, Tagore represents how they came out into a new path right. in the middle way. So you know, the the whole book itself uh, actually discusses through these last people. It's actually talking about this last last status of India. So India lost itself, and it has to find a new path. Uh, and of course, you know, and it has to be on equal footing, and everybody should be equal.
0: So I'm going to shift. I'm going to shift back to the uh, from your article back to the cool. overall structure of modern Hinduism in text and context. And um, when readers pick up your book, um, uh-huh. what contributions to the field you know do you hope your book will make? And what would you like your readers of the book uh, to take from uh, to to take from the essays in terms of uh, Hinduism, how we understand Hinduism, and how as we as academics approach the study of the tradition. Right.
1: Um, it, the, the book has a lot to contribute, uh, and uh, as I already said, the, this is, you know, talks about traditional uh, sources and also the modern practice. So it has a lot to contribute in both ways, and of course a number of themes. When we see of Hinduism, right, you know, the colonial studies of Hinduism uh, have always been um, kind of a disjunctive, you know, the, the the classical Hinduism is different, modern practice is different, uh, regional Hinduism is different, uh, and different Shaiva sects are different, you know, Shaivism is different, Shaiva sect is different, you know, so... Um, uh, so there is an article uh, which talks about, you know, multi-regional, multi-linguistic It talks about, you know, the modern practice, how the Jangamwadi Matha mm-hmm. uh, in Banaras actually represents the universe, universalist approach of this veerashaiva group
0: mm-hmm.
1: as against what was uh, seen to be, you know, as a reg- regionalist group. Yeah, and she discusses by studying Telugu, Kannada, Marathi, and uh, Sanskrit sources. Yeah. How it was always pluralistic, right? It like, again ties up into a number of other articles, and also Gora, also right? You know, Hinduism uh, is this pluralistic uh, religion, not not a you know uh, regionalistic or you know not a one way kind of uh, religion. So, um, so a number of texts, of course, they they. Uh, uh, are studied here, but they are studied with a view to understand uh, what was the understanding up to this point, and what we can learn uh, from studying these new articles.
0: So, um, Lavanya, um, as we are going to draw the podcast to a close soon, um, okay. do you have a preview for our audience as to what you have planned for your next research?
1: Um, I am one of my books is actually in press.
0: Um, I
1: am currently making edits to it. Um, So it's uh, India and New History. Uh, It uh, utilizes a number of new sources uh, that we have on Indian history uh, and um, it gives a comprehensive introduction to Indian history.
0: Uh, And that's one.
1: And then I'm also working on a manuscript. I'm working on the manuscript of uh, um, another book. Uh, It's uh, Ancient Settlement Patterns of South India. So that's still in the manuscript stage. So these are my projects, that's upcoming projects.
0: Lovely. Uh, Lavanya, thank you for being on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. It was a pleasure to be able to talk to you about your book, Modern Hinduism in Text and Context, which has been released by Bloomberry Publishing. So uh, it is out there on the market for anyone who would like to read it. To our listeners, thank you for joining me on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Um, the podcast is thank you. New Books Network, brought to you by Amherst College Press. And uh, if you would like to know more about the New Books Network and the range of podcasts that the network offers, uh, please visit uh, www.newbooksnetwork.com and subscribe as well to the network on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. Lavanya, thank you again.
1: Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Sandeep. It's, it's my honor and pleasure to be here.
0: And uh, I'm your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University. To learn more about why Athabasca has been the world's leader in open education, please visit www.athabascau.ca. Until next time, uh, thank you for listening and take good care.